Thanks, Tyler. Hey, good morning, guys. Happy New Year. 2017. Uh, so before I get started, um, I want to point out a couple resources I'm using this morning. One of my all-time favorite books, The Shaping of Things to Come, uh, by Alan Hirsch and Michael Frost. I'll be quoting them. And then also The Church as Movement by J.R. Woodward and my homeboy, Dan White Jr. I can call him that because we're friends. I like him. And it's a great book. So start of the new year, 2017. This time of year seems to bring with it some uh, gut checks, both literal and figurative, uh, when it comes to how we're doing, how we're wired, what bot, you know, our, our physically, spiritually, emotionally, uh, just checking where we're at uh, at the beginning of the year seems to occur. So uh, literally speaking, like everyone else here, I'm pro- you're probably taking a hard look at your physical uh, stature at this point of time. And I basically, over the last two weeks, uh, did not see or consume a vegetable, uh, and I engulfed an enormous amount of baked goods, and I've figured out pretty quickly that is not the way that God wired me to eat. It is not a, uh, it's, it's not a long-term solution. So I'm doing the Whole30 program. Uh, I've jumped on that bandwagon. Um, I'm enjoying it for the most part, um, and it, 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 I enjoy meat and vegetables, so that works, but... Having no creamer for my coffee is a bit of a, it's, a, it's difficult for me. That's the only thing I'm really struggling with. Figuratively speaking, there's spiritual gut check going on. There's, um, you know, how am I doing as a husband, as a father, uh, as a friend, as a pastor? I'm asking these questions as I begin a new year because, like you guys, each year I start, I'm considering what does my year of growth and maturity and impact and influence uh, look like because I want it. To, I don't want it to stay the way it is. I don't want it to be stagnant. I want it to grow and to flourish and to improve. And so, being a human and particularly being a Christian, that's something we pay attention to a lot because we all are on this constant journey of trying to figure out how we're wired and how to improve that, how to how to grow and mature and and, and figure this thing out. So whether it's physical, emotional, or emotional, spiritual, it's understanding how God wired us. It leads us to a life uh, of maturity and growth. And so over the coming weeks, uh, we're, we're starting a new series today called Wired, and over the coming weeks, we're going to explore and rediscover how God wired the church individually and communally. But before we get there, we need to go on a journey of deconstruction. So, all right, we, we got to take a look at the culture and the rhythm that we're a part of and, and see how we may have like, kind of got drawn into some currents that maybe God is trying to pull us out of. So going back to this desire, we all want to make an impact. We all want to influence others. We all uh, want to make a difference with our words and our lives and, and the way that we live. And uh, there's a cultural practice and a word that's associated with this desire and its leadership. Right? It's, it's a big, powerful word that um, if when we think about wanting to make an impact or a difference, Leadership is a big part of that. And so there's two prevalent styles of leadership uh, in our culture. And so we're going to do a little critique, a little deconstruction of each. And the first one uh, is probably the most prevalent, and it's the one that that seemingly most people gravitate to, and it's hierarchical leadership, uh, which is very popular. So it's criteria to, to, to kind of swim in that stream to make an impact in the world and to have success in the world or to influence the world, to swim in that stream. Some of the criteria that is used to participate are things like gender, race, education, success, money. These are things that people look at 
uh, when it comes to climbing the ladder of hierarchical leadership. Um, there's more criteria than that. We're not going to deep dive into anything, but there's one, let's take one particular low-hanging fruit that we can look at as an example, and that's money. That seems to be a major consideration when it comes to making an impact within hierarchical leadership. Um, so this is easy and, and relevant, and, and it's ongoing in our culture right now, so we're talking about our politicians. Um, this, now, this stat's a month old, but it's still really, really interesting and reveals some of the nature of this type of um, belief of hi in, in hierarchy. The, network, the net worth of the cabinet Trump has selected as of December 2nd was at least $11 billion, and Trump has named less than half his advisors so far. So I found that that's fascinating, maybe disturbing uh, for, for some of us in the room. Now, I found this next stat even more fascinating as it reveals the direction of, of, of the criteria in order to impact the world. Collectively, the wealth of Trump's cabinet choices so far is roughly four times greater than President Obama's cabinet and nearly 30 times greater than the one George W. Bush led at the end of his presidency. It's, I didn't know that, and that's fascinating, that you see this trend of, of wanting to have impact and influence in the world and what or what is one of the criteria that's considered. And that's just a, a really quick surface level look at that. Uh, but we, but you know, that's one criteria. Now the operational habits of making an impact with that style of leadership are things like individualism, control, and power. So if you look at anybody who participates in that type of a system, they, are, they have a tendency to want to be elevated and, and celebrated. That's what we do with individuals. We, we naturally, even like, let's say, let's go to sports for an example. Uh, I love LeBron James. Uh, I like the Cavaliers. I actually grew up in Indianapolis. I'm a Pacers fan, but when the Cavaliers were playing the Warriors in the finals last year, I was rooting for the Cavaliers because I was rooting for LeBron. I, I, I elevate, I have a tendency to elevate him above the team because he's an amazing athlete. And we have a tendency to do this no matter what area people are trying to make an impact in, we have a tendency to elevate within hierarchical leadership to a status of celebrity uh, and individualism. Now, these types of leaders tend to practice also high control. So this is where phrases like, you're on a need-to-know basis come from. You ever been in a, in, a, in a work environment where you've gotten that line? Or the joke, I would tell you, but I would have to kill you. Some of you may be like, no, I really, I really would. Like that's, <laughs> I work for the government. I don't know. I don't know how serious that is, but you've probably heard someone say that before, and that joke and that spirit comes from participating in this system of impact and influence in the world. And these leaders typically rely on top-down authoritative power to create influence and change. So let's contrast that style of leadership with the leadership style of Jesus. So I find it revolutionary and invigorating that the symbol of leadership for our faith is the cross, which is filled with irony, the fact that it's a cross. So we follow a lowly carpenter from Nazareth, a town so forgettable that it's recorded as people saying, what good could come from Nazareth? That's how they thought of him. He gained influence not through violence or political power or military power or democracy, but by serving others, giving his power away. So rather than trying to attain a status of celebrity or power. Oftentimes, when he would perform miracles, he would say, don't tell anybody. 
because he, he was not into that. That's not how he, he wanted, and now he wanted us to copy that example. He was showing us how to live and to operate in the world. So through these acts of healing and love and ultimately sacrifice on the cross, the ultimate act of giving power away, Jesus and the cross are shockingly antithetical to the nature of leadership, uh, well, of hierarchical leadership in our culture. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, if we go from hierarchy, then we can go all the way to the other end of the spectrum, and people tend to like, gravitate to the extremes. I don't know if you've noticed that, but our, our culture seems to be becoming more, Tyler kind of inferred this earlier, that it, our culture seems to be becoming more siloed. Um, any, uh, you know, look at any Gallup poll and any anthropologist, and they'll tell you that society is actually segregating even more in their ideologies and their beliefs, who they spend time with, that's occurring. So we swing this pendulum all the way to the other side, and we have flat leadership where power is avoided as much as possible and hierarchy is either eliminated or it's just kept to a min minimum. So quickly, the effect of that is that leadership tends to be absent and it lacks direction. Goals and missions and, and, and hopes of influence tend to be fuzzy and unfocused. An example I can think of, uh, I went on the last two trips to Greece to serve with Syrian refugees and we went into these squats, like these abandoned hotels or these elementary schools where the refugees had settled. And there's like two or 300 people in each squat. And overseeing most of the squats was an anti-political group called the Anarchists. And they have a symbol spray painted all over Greece, all over the buildings. And it, I mean, probably 90, if not 100% of the time, we would walk into the squat and we'd say, and we would want to inquire, like, what supplies do you need? Do you need food? How can we serve? How can we support you? And the answer we always got was, oh, the person in charge is not here. And then we would walk away kind of laughing like the anarchists aren't very good at anarchy because they don't want leadership, but no one could give us an answer because no, the, the person in charge wasn't there. So it reflected the impotence of that belief system of flat leadership. There's no ability to move forward. And that's the other extreme. And we would laugh at, you know, they would believe in no anarchy, uh, but they were awfully dependent on uh, authority uh, every time that we interacted with them. So culturally... People gravitate. Now, I, I know that I'm generalizing here. Not everybody fits into those categories, but I'm just picking out maybe two of the most uh, prevalent categories of influence and leadership uh, in our culture. There's more than that. And I critiqued politicians earlier, but our political system actually tries to find the happy middle there. It tries to have the flat leadership of the American people vote for these representatives into a hierarchical leadership pattern. But the problem is the criteria are not the criteria that Jesus would use. In fact, if you, like, let's take money, for example. When Jesus was nominating leaders or people of influence, money was not a factor. In fact, what we see in the New Testament is that generally the more money someone had, the harder it was for them to lead with his type of influence and his style of interaction and impact and influence. So he has completely different criteria than what our culture uses to nominate people for influence or impact. So now let's talk about this personally, as, as the church. So even if you're not into the whole God, church, Jesus thing, you're going to get a glimpse here into what we believe operating together and operating with others looks like in a community. And there's a section in Scripture that we're going to study specifically in regards to how God wired us individually and how he wired us communally to interact. So rather than the word, use the word leadership, which is not in the New Testament, the church organizes itself around a word called ministry. If you look at um, 
the definition, if you actually Google the definition of ministry, uh, it means to attend to the needs of someone or provide something necessary or helpful. So another word that Jesus repeats through, throughout his biographies is servant. Literally, bond servant is what he meant when he said this, if you look at the actual Greek. So the answer to the question, who's in charge, has been answered. It's Christ. So for example, I'm not the lead pastor of this church. He is. I'm one of the pastors of this church. I'm one of the ministers of this church. So rather than money, race, gender, education, anarchy, or any other criteria, New Testament ministry is more about gifting, calling, and character. The church operates in a radically countercultural, completely unique, and I would claim, not that I'm biased or anything, but I think it's beautiful the way that the church is meant to operate. It doesn't operate like that all of the time, uh, unfortunately. But probably the most famous church starter in history and author of many of the books in the New Testament was Paul. Paul was a religious and respected Jew who became a Christian, and he started many churches all over the place in many different cities, and he wrote letters to these cities, essentially coaching them in theology and practices and challenging, challenging them to continue their journey closer to Christ. And we have an amazing gift that we have many of these letters recorded in the New Testament, uh, books like Romans, Ephesians, Galatians, Colossians. Paul wrote all of these to these different churches he started. Today we're going to talk about this letter that he wrote to the church he started in Ephesus. So let's do a little quick geography lesson here. here I want to show a picture of Ephesus. So it's over here on the western side of Turkey. I simply want to show this because I think this is really cool. You see the big island off of the coast of Turkey that's yellow in color to the top of the word Greece? That's Lesbos. It's 187 miles from Ephesus. So our team that's going there in March is going to be really close to where you know, Paul started this church. I thought that was interesting. And now I'm a little jealous that I'm not going because it's so close. Um, so our team's headed there in March. But what's unique about Ephesus and about this letter to Ephesians is that it's a letter that Paul wrote, and he wanted it to be circulated to all of his churches. So we, a church, 2,000 years later, in the tradition of the church that, churches that Paul started, we get to look at Ephesians, and this is still powerful and relevant to us. It's still meant to be living and active in our community. So with, let's dive into what he says here in Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to read verses 1 through 16. I'll stop a couple times to point out a few things. This is one of those verses that you, or sections that you should read and like pause and think about it for more than we're going to get to do that today because it's filled, it's dripping with depth and with power. So just know that we're taking a very cursory level view of what he's writing here. So here's what he says. As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So Paul's just taking this first section and he's reminding them of who's in charge, who the leader is. And I love that. It's not about him, it's about Christ. It's about God, it's about the Trinity. He's just reminding them who our leader is. So to, but, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. And this is why he says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and he gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended on the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. 
So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. It's, so it's those five ministries, those five roles that keep Christ as the leader and the head of the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the teachers, and the shepherds. And this is good news for everyone because when those five roles are working together, this naturally draws not only the church community, but other people closer and closer to Christ. We are, when people are operating like this, this is a, an illustration of the beauty of communal living, of true intimacy with each other and true unselfishness and servitude. It's attractive to see people operate like that. So here's the effect of serving and ministering in this style. Paul continues, Then they will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So Jesus had, has wired us communally, communally with these specific roles. Individually, apostles, prophets, evangelists, teachers, and shepherds. Uh, typically, it seems like each one of us have a particular area that God has given us grace in that we are stronger in of those five roles. But we do have the ability to minister in each one of those areas. And we're going to get into more detail about that in the coming weeks. Uh, but when you see that, it's not like you're pigeonholed into that one role. What's beautiful about the grace of Christ is that he can call you into different seasons of serving in different roles. And he can give you the power and the strength and the wisdom to do that. So here's why this scripture is so important to us and sacred to us at Restore Church. It, and it's, I mean, it's a big deal. And I'm just going to quote Hirsch and Frost. Uh, I can't say it better than them. They said, The connection between this fivefold ministry and the church's maturity and mission is direct and undeniable. Paul actually sees fivefold ministry as the very mechanism for achieving mission and ministry effectiveness and Christian maturity. He seems to be saying that without a fivefold ministry pattern, we cannot mature. If we can't live like this, and trust me, it is a shock to the system to live like this. It is really hard not to gravitate to the way that culture tries to influence and impact, but instead to gravitate to the way that Jesus organized humanity. Um, it's shocking, but it's also, it's beautiful. Uh, for example, I mean, I, I referenced Whole Foods later. It's a shock to the system as my body is adapting to that. But it's amazing to feel the energy and the health and the, the cleanliness. Like you can feel it just in like, Six or seven days, it's the same thing uh, when it comes to operating in the, in the uh, picture that Jesus gave us. So I don't know about you, but I'm guessing you hope 2017 is a good year. I don't know if you guys have seen a lot of the memes like 2016. There's a lot of people that hated 2016. I hope that's not the case for 2017. Um, I'm, I'm, I mean, I think we all hope that it's a year of not only cultural beauty, but also individual beauty of growth and maturity. So understanding how God wired you doesn't just play out in our church community. 
It plays out in every relational context you're in. You're a Christian, if you're a Christian, you're a Christian 24-7, wherever you go. So when you learn to operate like this with other people, and you learn how you're wired, and you learn how they're wired, it's going to bless whatever relational context you bring that habit into. So work, uh, neighborhood, family, uh, your, your marriage, whatever it may be, if if there is a relationship you have and you learn how to operate in this way, it's going to bless that relationship and that context. When you mature in the way of Christ, it's naturally going to draw people in to maturity as well. So let's close out with some fun because uh, we're going to go into a lot more detail about these five sp- specific roles over the coming weeks. But I want to give you just a quick cursory level view of what the heck is an apostle, prophet, of, it sounds weird. All right, you read that and you're like, prophet, that's kind of freaking me out a little bit. All right, so let's talk a little bit about what, now keep in mind this is 2,000 years ago, it was written in Greek, translated to English. So uh, just remain calm as we go through this and, and don't be too weirded out when you read Paul's words here because it still applies and it's still powerful. So I like to use this mountain climbing illustration when I talk about Ephesians 4. So you might be able to figure out how God wired you just by this. So think about this in regards to how God may have wired you. So if you're going to climb a mountain, apostles are the ones that are going to be sitting around and they're just going to all of a sudden say, let's go climb a mountain. And they're just going to take off running. Like, let's go do something crazy, dangerous, risky. And they're not going to think it through at all. And they're just going to have this dream and this vision that's nuts. And they'll say, let's go, let's go climb it and just take off running. So they're the, 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 the accelerators, the dreamers, the visionaries. Then you have the prophets. The prophets are also fast-paced. They're going to be probably the second person to come along because they're scared that the apostle's an idiot and that he needs some wisdom. He needs someone to point out, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's climb that mountain because that one's doable. And they may even have this deep, unexplainable, gut-level feeling of, I don't know why, I can't explain it, but that's the mountain we need to climb. And the apostle's going to kind of resist against that an immature one will, uh, but that's what the prophet's going to do. They're going to say, let's climb that specific mountain. The evangelists are the recruiters and the networkers. They're going to grab the apostle and the prophet, and they're going to say, wait a second. Let's see how many people we can get to go with us up the mountain. They're gonna, they want everybody to be involved. They're includers. They're recruiters. They're networkers. <clears throat> and they want everybody to come with on this incredible journey. The shepherds are kind of like the evangelists, but the fact once the evangelists kind of gathered everybody together, they're going to be the ones that, set, that make sure no one gets left behind on the mountain. Like, let's make sure everybody's taken care of. No one trips and falls and gets hurt. Let's, you know, let's keep in mind that this person has these special needs or this person uh, has this injury. They're the nurturers, the empathizers of the group. And then the teachers are going to stop everybody. They're going to be the most hesitant because they're going to want to plot out the exact route up the mountain. They want to study the mountain. They want to know the mountain. They want to know the ins and outs and what's unique and what's the most strategic way to climb up and climb down the other side of the mountain. So they're going to be the ones speaking to the apostles saying, hey, I know you want to climb a mountain. This is the exact way we should go so that everybody can go and make it and be safe and experience this climb in the most effective manner. So let's do a quick show of hands. How many of you guys think you're an apostle? Only a couple crazy people in here. Okay. How many of you guys think you're a prophet? Okay, a few more hands. What about an evangelist? And then a shepherd or pastor? 
is what Paul calls pastor. And then teachers, get your hands up. Yeah, that's like all of D.C. All you educated, master's degrees, PhDs. Just listen to me. I know what I'm talking about. I got like eight degrees and like $400,000 of student debt. I know what's going on. So that, that is like some 21st century lingo about what Paul's talking about. Now, when those five are operating together within the church, within culture, this is when beautiful things start to happen. This is when impact and uh, restoration is made. Um, not my notes, but I'm giving this example. So just a quick example of how this works. Five years ago, we started the church, and it, we started with kind of like the cards we were in cult. And the organizations that hired us to start, they wanted me to be the lead pastor. And I was uncomfortable with that because of this, because of how Paul told us to operate as a church. Like, I'm not into churches adopting business ethics to operate. Like, having one person in charge, I don't think that's healthy. And they said, well, you need something, you need, you know, something that's good at the start of the church is to pick a mission to be involved in. And I, without thinking, because I'm an apostle, I verbally spit out, yeah, we'll do that, and we committed somewhere in the neighborhood of like 15 to 20 grand uh, to starting some churches in uh, South America. And then like two or three months before we started the church, I felt like God was telling me to um, cancel that commitment, which was not a fun phone call, <laughs> uh, to say, you know what, I, I don't think that I can do that individually. I think it's our church communally that has to lead us into mission. I, I feel like there's I, I need to listen. Yeah, I'm the guy that's probably going to be the dreamer and the step taker, but I have to listen to people in order to make strategic and wise and Holy Spirit-filled decisions. So we canceled that. And then three years later, three is a long time, we, we just waited to get involved in international missions. And in the span of one week, I don't know if you guys remember this, it was a year and a half ago, the picture of the Syrian child, the, the toddler that washed up on the beach, he's dead, it was maybe the most disturbing image I've ever seen. And I know it was all over the headlines. And that week alone, I had all kinds of people in our church communities texting me or calling me or emailing me and saying, we got to do something about this. Um, there, we, we can't ignore that. And that, I felt the Holy Spirit saying, there you go. There's your, that you waited, and now you've got people speaking into it. And since that time... Now, we're just at the beginning of stages getting involved. We're getting ready to take our third trip. We're doing a fundraiser. We've given a lot of money to supporting organizations who have been on the ground for years and years supporting refugees and Muslims, and we hope that continues to increase. But I just wrote two articles for two different publications in the U.S. because they can't find any other churches in our network that are doing something like this. And yeah, I'm patting ourselves on the back. I'm openly saying, like, we, we're doing something that I think is that God thinks is beautiful and impactful, and he wants it to grow, and it's growing. And it's, I think it's happening because we operated like Paul told us to operate, communally, and speaking into, into these missions and this impact that we hope for. I think that's how the Holy Spirit works, and I think when we, when we do that in every context we're in, whether it's church or work or family, beautiful stuff just happens. It's almost weird and unexplainable. How when we follow Christ and we imitate him, great things happen. So now back to apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher. Now you've got maybe a feeling for what you think you are, but if you want to get a little bit more specific, there's a free test online. It's fivefoldsurvey.com. It's like 10 minutes, and it'll probably give you a feel for how God has wired you, which role 
you tend to gravitate to. Um, and I think it's important you take that before you come back next week, because next week, Carrie is going to be teaching on apostles and prophets and what that means. So we're going to talk about their strengths and their weaknesses. Uh, she's going to give tips on how they should interact with each other and how they should interact with the other group and, and interact with you know, all of them, strengths and weaknesses, how to communicate with one another. I think this will be really spiritual, but also really practical. I think this is stuff you can take into, like I said, every relational context you're in. So she's, I'm an apostle, she's a prophet, so she's going to talk about apostles and prophets, and then Andy's going to talk in two weeks about evangelist shepherds and teachers, because he's an evangelist shepherd. So you should probably hear it. It's kind of cool to hear from those people and what they've learned uh, in their journeys and their growth of maturity and operating like this. Um, and that's what we hope to do. When we, when we learn and we study and we figure out how to interact with each other and how each other's wired, the more we know about each other's wiring, the better we're going to be at serving with one another and for one another, the greater impact our, uh, in our city uh, and the closer to Christ we're going to get. So let's pray.